You know, <clears throat> I have had a long-held conviction, really. It's not even a belief. It's a conviction that in life in general, the best defense is a good offense. Now, you know this to be true in football. If you're watching a football game and your team's offense is on the field, moving the ball down the field, hopefully scoring points, that means by definition their opponent is on defense. Their offense is sitting on the bench, not scoring points, hopefully not advancing the ball down the field. That's true in football, but it's also true in life. I think about marriage. If you want to guard and protect your marriage from all of the forces that might assail it, that might come against it in this world, man, do what you can to make your marriage thrive and flourish and prosper and be everything God wants it to be. The best defense is a good offense. Lately, though, I have found a new arena where this immutable law plays out. I was talking to a really good friend of mine. He's about my age, and I knew that he was about to have shoulder surgery coming up on a shoulder that he had previously already had operated on. And so I asked him, I said, when are you doing your shoulder surgery? He goes, well, you're not going to believe this. I had to delay my shoulder surgery because I was playing tennis and I ruptured my Achilles tendon. And until my Achilles heals, they can't operate on my shoulder. And he goes, Mac, age is no joke. Father time is undefeated. And then I thought about another friend of mine who lives in another state, and he's had both shoulders operated on. As a matter of fact, the one that he just had done about six months ago, he just had to go under the knife again to have that same shoulder operated on. And I started thinking about both of these guys in my life, close friends of mine. I thought, these guys are falling apart. <laughs> and then I thought about the last month that I have had. In the last month, I've had a couple of very superficial skin cancers cut out. I mean, they took a chunk out of the back of my shoulder. I made the mistake of asking the dermatologist if I could see what she removed. She showed me. After I regained consciousness, I was kind of like, wow. One of my, here on my forehead. And I don't know if you can see, I've got a little bit of a bruise here on my chin this morning. That, that happened. I was down on Rainy Street inviting people to Easter services. And this guy just punched me. He goes, we don't want your kind in here. I'm just kidding. That's not what happened. I, I had to, I've, over the years, I had a, a little bit of gum recession. And so I had to have oral surgery lately and so, recently. And so I've had like, a little bruise right here. And I thought, man, all of my friends and I, we are falling apart. And then it hit me. It's age. It's age. And, and I've noticed... As, as I'm, let's, let's call it maturing. As I'm maturing, even where our health is concerned, the best defense is, in fact, a good offense. If we will do everything we can to take care of ourselves when we're younger, then we have fewer consequences and problems as we get older. The best defense is, in fact, a good offense. And there's another layer that comes with this immutable law. I think as we mature... And that is awareness. I, I've kinda, I'm kind of becoming and finding my friends and peers becoming more and more aware of these 
incredible challenges that have always been there. We just didn't think about them or know about them when we were younger. I asked my dermatologist, I said, if I had come to you sooner about this thing in my shoulder, my forehead, would you, would you, she said, listen, you've probably had this since you were a kid. It just now is coming to the surface now that you have matured. She said, when you were a kid, and I thought about it, I go, we didn't wear sunscreen. You know what sunscreen was when I was a kid? More time in the sun. You build up that base. We were all about that base, about that base. It was all about just get more sun, and that way you don't get burned. That's, that's not a long-term solution. The best defense is, in fact, a great offense. And this is exactly where Jesus lands his model prayer, what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you have called it the Our Father. But it's at the very conclusion of Jesus' model prayer that he calls us to go on the offensive, to be preemptive and proactive, to be offensive in guarding and protecting our lives spiritually. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, these are the words of Jesus as he concludes this prayer. This may be familiar to you. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now that's the, the King James Version. But this prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I, I got to tell you, for a long time, I had a real problem with this verse. I, I, I had trouble understanding why would we ask God to not lead us into temptation? Or to put it another way, why would God lead me into temptation? And I realized it's not a theological problem. This is not a threat to the indescribable goodness of God. It's rather, it's a language problem between us and the English and the Greek that the original New Testament was written down in. I think the best way to show you is to show you this. Take a look at this. It says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The original, the Greeks of that day and age were incredible at drama and making up government, but they were terrible at punctuation. This is kind of how you ought to look at it. it. Let's put it another way. And lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There should be a, a comma there if the Greeks had commas. And lead us. Not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is an invitation from us to God to say, God, lead me, lead us. This is a prayer for, this is a prayer for direction and protection. God, lead me where you want us to go. Not, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Protect us, guard us as you advance us, as we move forward in your name, advancing your purposes. It is this incredible, incredible interactivity between the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and us, just, just little old us. God says, lead us, lead us. It's, this, it's the same idea that's in Proverbs chapter three where the Bible says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. In all your ways, in everything that you do, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. God, lead me, guide me, direct me where you want me to go, and on the way there, lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think it's important 
when we think about temptation, we, we, all, we all understand temptation. We've got a concept of what temptation really is. But I think it's important for us to really be able to dissect temptation in order to understand it, in order to be aware of it. You will not spend a single day alive on this planet and not be tempted. That, that is absolutely going to happen. You ought to turn to your neighbor right now with an encouraging smile on your face. Tell him, you're going to be tempted. Now, I want, I want you to listen. That was a great warm-up. Now, let's do it like we actually mean it and tell them with a smile. You're encouraging them. You're going to be tempted. It will happen. But, but again, let's understand where temptation comes from. Look in the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1, the Bible says this. Remember, when you were being tempted, notice it doesn't say if. It says, when you are being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So temptation is an enticement. A lot of times using our natural God-given desires. A lot of times the desires that lead us into temptation are, are things that God has baked into us, that he's hardwired us with, but we follow them into temptation. We don't deliver ourselves from evil. That, that word entice there is a great word in, in James. It's actually a, a term for, for fishermen. A lot of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. We know that fishing is a biblical sport. You understand. How many of y'all like to fish? How many love to fish? Like how many of you love, this is how you really determine somebody loves to fish. If you love like when you're thumb gets kind of sandpapered on it because you've been gripping lips of bass all day. How many of you love that feeling, having that on your thumb? Come on, we got to have more spiritual giants than that in this church. Well, that word entice is the Greek word for lure. It's the same word for a lure. It's what a fisherman uses to catch a fish. You may use a Texas rig plastic worm. It may be a fly for tarpon. It may be, it may be a rattle trap. It, it may be a spinner bait. Whatever the case may be, it's, you want to entice that fish to bite. You want, you want to entice the bite so that the fish just kind of, and, and by the way, fish are dumb animals. They are, they are beyond stupid. They, they, that's the size of their brain right there. It's a, you want that reflex strike where they just see that they, oh, but it's the hook. It's the hook in the lure that gets that fish in the boat. And it's the exact same thing that Satan uses in your life and in my life to entice us. Take those, those natural desires that we have a lot of times, but then to just kind of skew it a little bit, to maybe just shift it off axis a little. And then all of a sudden we see the bait 
We are enticed. But there's always a hook. There is always a hook. That's what this is about, temptation. And, and to understand temptation, we really have to understand sin. Because it says here that, that our desires entice us and drag us away and give birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, when sin matures, it leads to death. Now, if you're new around here, I am not one of those preachers that loves to preach hellfire and brimstone no, and, you know, hellfire and damnation. No, that's just not my bag at all. But I do love to preach truth. And I do feel the responsibility to communicate the reality of sin. It's death. Sin, you think about sin in terms of brokenness. We're all born into this condition. We're all spiritual descendants of Adam and Eve who by their free will chose to inject sin into the human equation. I've got it, you've got it. All God's children are born into this condition. But it's that sin that when we allow it to mature, when we, when we give it wings, when we, when we feed the fire of sin, no matter what it is, it is always ending in death. Now, sin is not doing the wrong thing. Sin is not just doing the wrong thing. Like, when I was a kid and my mom found my children's picture book Bible that I had taken a magic marker to and colored on the inside pages, coloring on the inside pages, even though I knew it was wrong, that was not sin. That was a symptom of the condition, the disease that is sin. Sin is is brokenness. You can think about sin in terms of corruption. If somebody sends you a, a, a virus or an email that's got malware attached to it, you open that thing up and it corrupts your entire operating system. That's sin. Corruption is, is a really good word, as a matter of fact. Corruption, Webster's defines as to corrupt is to alter from the original or the correct form. That's, that's pretty, that, that theologically, that'll preach. Sin corrupts us from our original intended form that we were created for by God. Or to corrupt is to cause disintegration or ruin. To cause disintegration or ruin. Disintegration. That's, that's what sin is. Sin fragments. Sin leads to fragmentation chaos, disorder in our lives, in our relationships with each other? Sin, what are the things that causes quarrels among you? It is your own evil desires, the Bible says. So it's this, it's this condition that is sin. So when you understand that about sin, then temptation, temptation actually is just an invitation to contribute to your own corruption. Temptation is just an invitation to contribute to your own corruption. That frames it completely differently. All of a sudden, it's not just God up in heaven with a scorecard, although he will judge us. It's actually a condition of the heart. And so when we are tempted, when we are enticed and dragged away by our own evil desires, then we start to, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I don't. I don't think I want to go down that road. You're, you're asking me to contribute to my own corruption? 
<laughs> I don't think so. And there's this amazing promise that God gives us biblically. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we should all memorize. We should all memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The Bible says in Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart. That means I've made it a part of my spiritual makeup. It's part of the fiber of who I am. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, check this out. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. This is nothing new that you're going through, that I'm going through. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Isn't that amazing? God is so good. God is faithful. He will never allow you to be tempted in a way that you can't resist, that you can't walk away from it. Isn't that cool? That's amazing. If I give in to temptation, it's not a God problem. He says, no, no, no. If you are being tempted, I have measured that temptation against your ability to resist it walking in my power. I will give you the power you need to resist it. That's an amazing promise. I love it when people say, God won't give you any more than you can stand. And I love the heart that that comes from. It's just not biblical. It's just wrong. God lets stuff into my life all the time that I can't stand on my own, that force me to my knees to rely on his power and not my own. Temptation is just one of those things. The temptation to think, God's forgotten me. The temptation to give up. The temptation to quit, maybe on a marriage. The temptation to, to think God's not in this. No, no, no. Whenever you're tempted in those ways or any other way, you know God, God has got you. Years ago, I was getting ready to preach one Sunday morning, and at, at this particular time, our kids, I think, were in high school maybe. Yeah, probably high school. And we were sitting down here on the front row. I was getting ready to preach. And as the song was ending, one of Emily's friends leaned forward to me and kind of caught my eye. And she goes, you got this. I thought, that's one of the coolest things that anybody's ever said to me right before I preached. This high school kid. It was great. And I, and I remember thinking in that time, you know, I don't, but God and I together might if I stay out of the way. You got this. You got this is the promise of God. So when you know that God has given you the power to resist, if, if temptation is an invitation to contribute to our own corruption, then resistance, resistance is the grace-driven power to flee temptation. Resistance is just the grace-driven power to flee temptation. James chapter four, verse seven, another great verse to memorize. You could have both of these verses memorized before dinner tonight if you really wanted to. James four, seven. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Any questions? I mean, that's, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? 
You know, recently Julie was out of town and, and she doesn't like to eat a lot of, of red meat. So when she leaves town, man, I load up. She leaves town, it's filet city and I'm the mayor. And she was out of town and, and a friend of mine, really close friend, had told me about this series that they'd been watching on Netflix that was just incredible. I thought, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna grill me a filet. I'm gonna sit down in front of this series that, that I don't know if Julie would like it, but I'm gonna just check it out. And I sat down, pulled the steak up in front of me. I was watching it. Gus was there by my side, my dog. And about five minutes into this show, out of nowhere, with no warning, nudity for days. I cannot tell. I mean, like, all of a sudden, these people, I mean, and they were not married. And, I mean, I was just going, what in the heck? And... and in that moment, I just, I just I turned it off. I thought about calling my friend. I go, what are you trying to do to me? But I didn't do that. I thought, you know, I could, I could fast forward through that and get to the good story part of the show. But at least one time in my life, I, I thought, in that moment, I'm not doing this. Julie's out of town. We're empty nesters. I could have watched that and nobody ever would have known. And I would love to tell you that I have never in my life lusted. Well, one time when I was a young man, but then I prayed about it and kept, no, that's not true either. But that night, I did the right thing. And can I tell you something that happened spiritually in that moment with my steak, the blank screen? I gave myself a high five. I did. I just like, you know what? You did good. And I turned it on and started watching Everybody Loves Raymond. Because I could feel in that moment when I made that conscious decision to walk away from that temptation, I don't need that stuff in my head. Nobody does. It is crap. That is the spiritual terminology for it. And I, don't, I, I rarely use that kind of language, but the Apostle Paul in the New Testament used language a lot harder than that. So just don't send me an email. But when I resisted that temptation... I felt the spiritual muscle memory developing. I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to be stronger for this the next time that it happens. The next time that I'm tempted to give in. The next time that I'm tempted, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be stronger in my resistance in the power of God. Humble yourself before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, he's not going to leave you alone. And I know some people, you know, you think about the devil and you're like, that's kind of a cartoon, isn't it? I mean, like... Dante's Inferno, isn't that kind of old school? Listen, Satan does not show up with a pitchfork and red spandex. It'd be easier if he did. But make no mistake about it, Satan is real. Our adversary, the Bible says, roams around like a lion, seeking whom he will devour, seeking marriages to devour, seeking leaders to devour, seeking students and their faith and their walk with God to devour. That is real. And the more we resist him, the stronger our resistance grows in the power of God. It's an amazing, amazing promise. Now, Jesus brings this prayer in for a landing when he says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, I have to tell you, in some translations, this part of the Lord's Prayer is not in the Bible. 
That doesn't mean that it's like completely discounts everything that's in the Bible. It's just that some manuscripts in the earliest forms did not include this. This is actually what's referred to as the doxology. The doxology just means a word of praise. For thine is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. Amen. That's the doxology. It, it harkens back to something that David prayed in the Old Testament. By the time of Jesus, it was common for Jewish prayers to include it at the end of every prayer. So if you're reading a translation that maybe doesn't include this, it doesn't negate the whole Bible. It doesn't change anything thematically, doctrinally. It's just an add-on, but I think it's an important add-on for us to, to understand as we conclude this series. When Jesus says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, there's a lot going on there. And I wanna, I wanna encourage you with this as we conclude this series, as we think about Easter next week and where God is leading us in the weeks that follow. When Jesus says, for thine is the kingdom, for, that means because he's saying, remember why we pray. Remember why we pray. Because for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. God, you are God and I am not, and I need your help. I, I, I wanna interact with you, I wanna participate with you. Remember why we pray. For thine is the kingdom. Thine is the kingdom recognizes reality. Understand that God is God. That is a profound statement. I know it sounds repetitive, but to understand that God is God and we are not is ultimately to recognize reality. God is God whether you believe it or not, whether I believe it or not. But when we acknowledge it and recognize that reality, we begin to actually live life truthfully. That's why the Bible says elsewhere, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There will come a day, it's not now, but there will come a day when every single person, living and dead, will say, he is Lord. In that moment, we are judged by whether or not we have chosen to recognize that reality, to submit to his authority, or to reject it. If we've rejected it, then that becomes our eternity. If we have accepted it, that becomes our eternity. That's reality, that's truth. And so, whether you believe it or not, it's real. It is true. So to say, for thine is the kingdom, thine is the kingdom, that's, that's acknowledging, that's recognizing reality and the power. And the power, and that's, that's receive reinforcement. We, we need power. We need the reinforcement of God's power above and beyond our own. Let me ask you a question. How many of us had a hard conversation this week? Can I just see a show of hands? If you had a tough conversation, keep your hands up for just a second because I've got a follow-up question. How many of us knew that that conversation was coming? Keep your hands up. Look at that. A lot of us, a lot of us, we know, you may know that you've got one coming this week. In those moments, receive reinforcement. We need wisdom beyond our own. We need the power of God beyond our own. 
I'm going to ask you another question. Do not raise your hand. How many of us are tired? I mean, just in general. I mean, just tired. I knew a guy when I was in middle school. I'll never forget. His name was Barry. Whew, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm just tired. Can I tell you how many times I have heard that in my CD player over the last couple of years? <laughs> I'm tired. I'm tored. We need that power. The word power in the original Greek is the word dunamis. It's the same word that we get dynamite from. Dynamite. Jesus is saying as a child of God, you have the power of God at your beck and call. Ask for it. Thine is the power. For thine is the power. Thine is the glory. The glory, that just means that we recommit to our purpose. We recommit to our purpose. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him always. Yours is the glory. You'll be amazed at what God will do through your life if you don't care who gets the credit. If, if you apply yourself, recommit yourself daily to glorifying him in everything that you do, and then it says forever, forever, in the words of one great philosopher, I'm here to tell you that's a mighty long time. Forever. Forever is to recall our perspective. Recall our perspective. When we understand that this moment, this life, the Bible says is, it's a mist in the sweep of eternity. That gives us perspective. You know, when you, when you understand perspective from God's perspective, it helps frame everything else that we face and deal with in this world. And then it says, amen. I know a lot of people think that amen is just kind of a throwaway. It says something you do at church or, you know, whatever in the Bible. It actually means something. It means, let it be so. Let it be so. We reaffirm this prayer, we reaffirm our purpose in prayer. We reaffirm the fact that he is God and we are not. We reaffirm our prayer when we say, amen. It's a powerful, powerful thing that Jesus has given us here. It's only five verses in Matthew chapter six. Let's take a look at it together. Let's look at it in the King James. Matthew chapter six, verses nine through 13. Our Father which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What if this prayer, or, or something very, very, very similar to it, were a part of your every day? What if you just made an appointment, scheduled time with God, and said, whatever else happens in my day, this is gonna happen. We're, we're gonna attempt to do something that, that Jesus did in this prayer 
with this series as we bring it full circle. If you were here at the very beginning, we said that Jesus' model prayer shows us that prayer in general, as God defines it, as God desires it, prayer is personal. It's It's not remote. It says, our Father. Our Father. And our Father means that it's also relational. This isn't just like a a grocery list of things that we whisper to the universe. This is true relationship. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are different, God. You are God and I am not. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It, It is intentional. It's personal. It's relational. It's intentional. It's all of the things that Jesus is. It's all of the things that Jesus made possible in his death, burial, and resurrection. All of the things that we recognize and celebrate and give thanks for on Easter. It's it's all right there in prayer because it's all right there in Jesus. I wanna ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And I want to just present to you a question. Is Jesus for you personal, relational, and intentional? Have you chosen to follow him? If you haven't, then it's our privilege as a church to extend to you the invitation We just get to deliver the invitation that Jesus is. If you'd like to begin that relationship with him, then we invite you to pray. Silently, right where you are, whether you're in the room or you're online or whatever it may be, just talk to God. Silently and pray something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin to you so that I can claim and accept your forgiveness, your grace and your truth. And in exchange for your life, I'll give you mine. And I will follow you from this moment forward. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for Easter. And thank you for making me aware of it and giving me the grace to respond to it. I pray this prayer in your name. If you would just remain with your heads bowed for a moment. Because for anyone who prayed that prayer, this is the biggest moment of your life. And as a church, we would love to help with the moments that follow. And so I would ask you just a couple of things. If you would, let us know that you prayed that prayer, that you began that relationship with Christ. You can do that with the 
card that's in the seat back in front of you. There's a QR code you can use, or you can fill it out and hand it to one of our ushers or someone at the hub out underneath the front porch on your way out. If you're online, let your service host know. And all that does is begin a conversation. A conversation that'll proceed at whatever pace works for you about what this looks like, how, how we live in that relationship, in this community that we call the church. Second thing, we would humbly ask, if that was your prayers, our heads are bowed for just another moment, would you raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it up in the air for a moment as a physical statement of the spiritual commitment that you just made And know that as a family with you, we celebrate that. We honor that. As you put your hands down, we'll put our hands together to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.